I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Oh, and while you're here, could you do me a favor? If you like this show, follow it. That's it. It's pretty simple, really, and it's free. Just click the follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And if you already follow Speaking Soundly, thank you. But there's still something you can do to help out. Click the share podcast button and send Speaking Soundly to your friends and relatives that also like listening to candid and inspiring conversations with some of the best musicians on the planet. Okay, so thanks for the continued support. We really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Renowned conductor and visionary educator Leon Botstein is leaving his mark in more ways than one. As music director of the American Symphony Orchestra, he's known for bringing lesser-known masterpieces to the stage, while his near-50-year tenure as president of Bard College has transformed the landscape of higher education. His experiences both on and off the podium give him a unique perspective on the current state of the arts. The real threat to our art form is not the absence of audiences. It's the absence of patronage. The state is not going to pay for it, and the rich don't give a damn. So Elon Musk is not interested in classical music. Neither is Bill Gates. Henry Higginson, alone by himself, paid for the Boston Symphony Orchestra and built the hall. Where are they now? You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I played in an orchestra you conducted a long time ago, and I'll never forget it because you were working on this really hard passage with the viola section, and it wasn't really coming together. You looked down at this group of violists and you said, you're all playing like a bunch of jerks, only you used more colorful language. Do you think that frustration stems from the fact that a conductor's role can sometimes be reduced to just being a traffic cop where your only purpose is to make sure things happen in the right place at the right time before any music is made? It it, it all depends on the ensemble and the frustration, which I, I... I was more frustrated when I was younger. I'm less frustrated now because I've grown up in the business, so to speak. Uh, The frustration depends entirely on the group. So you know, as a veteran member of a great orchestra, that that orchestra can play together if it wants, barring that it's a new piece that is complicated. So it is frustrating when you work with a pickup group, which mostly I've done in New York. In New York, the groups I work with are fine freelance musicians. So they don't regularly play together. 
And most of the repertoire I do is unknown. So the anecdote you tell is probably a reflection of here we're putting this piece on the stage. That's a lot of hard work. So there is um, the both the pleasure of the unknown and the anger at the, the work that's involved to play it well. And at what point are you happy? Like when you're on the podium and all that hard work is done, the rehearsals are over, can you actually enjoy the music as you're conducting it? Well, it's a very good question. Any artist, performing artist, who is not nervous and anxious about losing concentration is probably a fool, even if they've played it a million times before. When you're up there, you are concentrated on getting it right because the orchestra actually needs you. You can't fool around as a conductor. In other words, you know, I, I go to concerts and somebody's doing standard repertory and jumping all over the place. And, and you know very well, you could probably play a lot of it without this person, right? And um, this is sort of visualization. You know, people look at the conductor. People say, I saw the concert. I didn't see the concert. I heard the concert, right? So the old timers, and I'm in the old timer department, didn't think we were the show. So when I'm up there, I have to ask the question, have I made the best case for this piece? So you're the youngest of two eminent physicians. Your older siblings would both go into science and medicine, and you played the violin. When you chose this life in the arts, were you encouraged by your parents, or is this a form of rebellion on your behalf? It was certainly some form of rebellion. So my parents, and we all came to this country. I was a small child, but we were immigrants. And my father was essentially the only survivor in his family. And my mother, one of very few survivors, her parents survived ghetto and camp. So the Holocaust was the major subject of my growing up. And my parents believed, rightly so, that their life was saved by the fact that they were physicians, that the Swiss kept them in Switzerland because they needed them. So going into medicine was considered the best protection from the threat to one's existence from a long history of anti-Semitism. Being a lawyer was considered a joke because a lawyer is dependent on becoming a member of a nation. If that nation expels you as a minority, but, you know, medicine's international. Now, everybody has a bellyache, you know. Every, everybody needs glasses. So the pressure on us to go into medicine was intense. My brother was the one who rebelled. He and my father quarreled over his decision to become a research scientist. The irony is that he became a world-famous and truly original and brilliant molecular biologist and geneticist. My sister uh, became a pediatric cardiologist, and she married a heart surgeon. Um, I was the youngest, and I definitely did rebel. And they were dubious about the whole thing, largely because I was not a wunderkind. They have the classic prejudice that um, unless you're a child prodigy, forget it. There's no career in music. Unless you're Yasha Heifetz or you're Yehudi Menuhin, you have no business in this business. I remember my father paid a visit to my violin teacher because he was very concerned that I was clearly not going to make a virtuoso career. 
At what age was that, that they decided that you would never be a virtuoso? I was 16, 17. Yeah. I knew that. I understood my own limitations in dexterity. I'm basically clumsy, so I have neither athletic ability nor the athletic ability that you can ascribe to playing an instrument well. You went to a specialized high school for music and art in New York City, but then went on to study philosophy and history at the University of Chicago and eventually would earn a PhD from Harvard. If you wanted to be a musician, why not go to a music conservatory? Because I somehow got the idea that music is part of life. It's not a segregated technical enterprise. And so I thought, if I'm going to contribute something as a musician, I have to bring something different to the table, a heightened capacity to form the argument on which a performance would be based. My dissertation was on the social and economic character of musical life in Vienna in the 19th century. So I studied things like music publishing houses, instrument makers, music education, the economics of concert life. I mean, I try to understand why was music an important factor in the cultural life of the city and why there wasn't a clear boundary between pop music and concert music, for example. So I, I focused early on the reclaiming effort of the history of music, to rewrite the history of music on the concert stage. You know, it, the minute I walked into Juilliard as a freshman, I felt like I was in this race training for a career instead of enjoying the study and exploration of music like you just described. But this clearly wasn't the case for you. Was that just part of the culture of education at the time, or were you an outlier in that respect? I, I don't know that outlier, but the root of it is in as a child digesting the endless stories about the past. My grandfather told a, a story which I'll never forget. I asked him whether in, in, in camp he ever cried. You think of all the suffering and death around you in the ghetto in Warsaw. And um, he said only once in the barracks when one of the other inmates began to sing a Schubert song and he burst into tears. I realized that music is an emblem of freedom and to some extent identity and a sense of one's humanness that is wildly significant and is one of the reasons that people fight to stay alive. So I never viewed music as a technical enterprise or as a career. It is not possible to compete successfully, in my view, as a instrumentalist or a composer without a broader education than what a conservatory provides. While you were studying history at the University of Chicago, you also won a conducting competition there. And then after the competition, one of the judges came up to you and told you you have no idea what you're doing. Right. Is that true? Totally. It was, not, it was not a judge. It was a graduate student in music who was a horn player and a conductor. He came up to me and he was 
He was angry. You know, we were in a tough profession. This guy said, you know, who the hell do you think you are? You have to learn more about the technique of conducting. If you ever get in front of a real major orchestra, you're, you're toast. Because, I mean, I would not have been toast had I been very handsome, which I never was. I, I, I like conducting because my back is to the audience. I don't like holes <laughs> where the audience is looking. I don't like that. I would rather be invisible. So, um, yes, I benefited. I've learned an enormous amount from players as well. Enormous amount. When you were at Harvard, you led an ensemble called the Doctors' Orchestra of Boston, which was comprised of medical students and professionals. So I have to ask, compared to conducting professional musicians, what's it like leading an ensemble filled with brain surgeons and neurologists? Well, it depends who the brain surgeons are. There were a couple of them who were really had left music having already achieved a very high level. And then they're the amateurs that they have an elasticity of what they can learn. You know, um, I once had to write a chapter for a book on Einstein. Harvard put together a book on the miracle year of 1905. That was the year that Einstein wrote three path-breaking papers, the most famous of which is on relativity. And in putting the book together, the scientists decided they needed someone to write about why was music so important to Einstein. He was an amateur violinist. So was Max Planck, the inventor of quantum mechanics, who was a much better musician than Einstein. He was a terrific musician, but that's less well known. Einstein's a more famous guy. And was Einstein a lousy violinist? I had no idea. Oh, really? Really? Terrible, to totally terrible. And his repertoire was classic, low-level amateur violin playing. He had a good time at it, and he, it meant a lot to him. But the point is that even with Einstein putting a lot of effort into improving his intonation or his rhythm or his sound, it probably there's no elasticity, you know what I mean? So if you're an orchestra of amateurs, in the doctor's orchestra, you know, you would prefer that the amateur have a good time and not make too much of a sound you know what I mean? Right. Speaking of Einstein playing the violin, and given your experience leading great institutions and your successes as a musician, educator, and scholar, I think you're uniquely qualified to answer the following question. Where does intelligence meet creativity? Do you have to be smart to be a great artist? The question is very, very good. So you're a good example. You are smart, articulate, and thoughtful. And those qualities, in my view, definitely influence your musicianship. You can hear an intelligent player. And that's also true of all the jazz musicians I've known. And I've never known a stupid jazz musician. They have to improvise. You know, they have to connect to an audience in a small space. The point is having an inquiring mind and having the habit of thinking about the world in which we live. You don't have to be intellectual. You know, there, I, there probably are, you know, dopey opera singers. There probably are. But um, most of them, they make the impression of being either uh, dumb or thoughtless. It's, it's not because they're not able to do so. They've chosen not to do so. 
you've been at Bard now. It's, it's coming on 50 years that you've been president there. So I'm sure you've seen presidents of other schools come and go. In your estimation, what makes a great leader of a school? Well, what, what makes a good leader of a school, first of all, most college presidents are hired for managerial and representational skills. Um, I was hired to build an institution. The charge I got from the bar trustees was make this place great. That's what they said. We, we, we don't care just to keep it open because it's our school. You know, we want to make it great and important. So that is a very different kind of job than most of the people. That's not what they're telling the president of Harvard. The, the president of Harvard is being told, keep it rich and don't make mistakes. Because the value added that a president of Harvard can give Harvard is very limited. They've got money, fame, reputation, they're a king of the hill. Um, the only thing to worry about is losing their position, perhaps. They're managerial jobs. They're, they're you know, like being ambassadors. That's different. So I, I, you know, I wouldn't survive any longer any of those jobs. Uh, uh, in fact, I would never be hired for those jobs because people are selected through a process which eliminates risk-taking and controversial opinions. Can you make a parallel between your success in education and conducting? The conducting parallel is that... Um, I don't believe that there's someone who couldn't come around and do a Brahms symphony in a way which is transformative of the musical culture. It's not going to happen. I mean, this stuff has been combed over, picked over. So either you do new music um, or you bring music into the culture of the city in a different way, you know, connect the, the art form with the life of the city. But running, you know, a big established institution that is set in its ways um, is a very different task, both as a conductor and the president of the institution. Also have to be willing to have an idea which gets philanthropy that motivates the very rich to support what you're doing. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I, my wife and I went to Bard to hear a recital just last week, and I was blown away by the campus. I mean, you have a concert hall designed by Frank Gehry. It's state-of-the-art facilities. It's gorgeous. How much money goes into building a place like this? Is fundraising just an ever-present aspect of your job? Oh, it's, it's with you 24 hours a day. And by the way, I'm not the first musician to experience that. Mozart had to fundraise for his own concerts. And many conductors married rich women. Um, Leinsdorf, Kuzowitzki, I, I unfortunately uh, failed to do so. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, so the practical paying musicians, get a hall built, getting facilities built is a constant, persistent looking for money. You can leave no stone unturned. And the number of very rich people interested in music has declined. The real threat to our art form is not the absence of audiences, Certainly not the quality of players. It's the absence of patronage. The state is not going to pay for it, and the rich don't give a damn, by and large. So Elon Musk is not interested in classical music. Neither is Bill Gates, and neither was Steve Jobs, and neither are the people who own Google. They're not listening to Mozart. They're not listening to Stravinsky. They're not listening to Bartok. They don't play an instrument. Henry Higginson, alone by himself, paid for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, created and built the hall. 
Where are they now? Yeah, but isn't this a slippery slope for you? Because I've heard you speak so passionately about the evils of corporate wealth and how it can actually ruin an institution. Is it difficult to raise the money necessary to build a campus like you have and not suffer the trappings of that money? Well, first of all, if you're clear in your mind that your ambition in life is not to be rich, money is not the measure of your life. Capitalism is not an ethical system. It's probably the best uh, means to create work and and wealth and uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. But, you know, there's no um, making a profit. There's no clean money. And the objective that we have, who are not-for-profit institutions doing good works, whether they be in health or in education or in the arts, is to put the money to good use. You know, I remember when I was first fundraising, I had a wonderful manufacturer who was an Irishman. He had a friend who was a German-American who went back to Germany in the 30s to serve the Reich. And he was denazified by the American authorities and returned to America, but very proud of his Nazi service and staunchly patriotic. So this proceed tells me we should raise money from this guy. And I thought, this guy, you know, his wealth came from a shipping line that was collaborative with the war. He was an active supporter of the Nazi regime, this murderous regime. I'm not going to eat at the same table as this guy. So he said, think about it. So I went to my grandfather, who had survived camp and ghetto, lost all his siblings, his eldest son. And I told him the story. And he looked at me and he said, are you not going to raise money from this guy because of me? Because you think I will disapprove? You're wrong. Nothing would please me more if that son of a bitch's money came into your hands and you were able to do something good with it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.